Well, friends, it's a joy to be back. Last week, as you know, we were down, or some of you, you might not know if you knew. If you knew, welcome, by the way. Uh, we love visitors. We love seeing new people come along to our church. We want to be a great church family, but we want to have open arms and welcome anyone that comes in. So if you're new, welcome. My name's Riley. I'm the pastor of the church. And we weren't here last week because we gathered with our sister church in Warunga, and we went down to Coleroy. There was over 300 of us down there hanging out, um, pre- listening to hopefully great preaching. Some of it was by me. Uh, great singing. We had great times away. I want to thank everyone that did so much to make that happen. Uh, there were so many people from our church. You did a great job. Um, and I don't know. I, had, I don't know why. I had lower expectations. <laughs> and so I had far exceedingly great time than I thought I was going to have. So that was really good. I was really happy. Uh, I was really pleased with it. Maybe I was just nervous about how it would go, but I I thought it was excellent. Uh, Friends, if you're new as well, it's a great time to join and come along because we are just starting a brand new series. We're going to work our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, This really is in some ways you could say the most important book in the Bible. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is vital. All Scripture is important. But in some way, Romans seems to be the most influential uh, and the most important book in all the New Testament. Uh, Has had the most profound impact on church history, on the theology and doctrine of the church, in changing the world. And so it's our privilege uh, to open it up together as a church. Uh, I'm going to be struggling today. I'm I'm actually quite sick, and uh, that's the second time in a month. You might have noticed about a month ago, (laughs) I was preaching through lament, and I might have looked quite lamentful. Uh, That's because before preaching, I'd actually taken um, sleeping tablets instead of Voltaren. I had a sore back, and so I took what I thought was Voltaren. Turns out it was Finergan. So as I was preaching, I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm dying here. I feel a little bit the same today, uh, but the good news is the power is in God's Word, not the preacher of God's Word, and so I'm confident that the Lord will still use it. But if I look a little bit out of it, that is why. We're going to dive into Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 4 this morning, Uh, and I've entitled the message, The Man and the Message. Uh, We're probably going to take about 70 sermons to get through Romans Uh, which is actually not that many. If you look at Martin Lloyd-Jones, 300. Uh, So John Piper took eight years. So count yourselves lucky. Uh, 70 70 messages, I think, but it will be well worth the investment. Uh, But to orient us, I'm actually going to read the whole section, Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. So would you please give attention to the reading of God's Word? Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God 
and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's join together in prayer. Our God and Father, we ask that you may bless the reading and the preaching and the applying of your holy word to us this morning. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's no understatement to say that Romans has changed my life in very unlikely circumstances. I first really encountered reading the letter to the Romans only halfway through the letter. I didn't really start at the beginning. I started in Romans chapter 8. And it was very unlikely way to have your life changed because I was changed by Romans by playing PlayStation. Uh, I was 16 years old and I was playing a PlayStation game called Pro Evolution Soccer 5. Uh, It was the rival to FIFA. It lost that battle and doesn't exist anymore. But I really liked Pro Evo Soccer and I would play Pro Evo Manager Mode and play tons and tons and tons of games while listening to John Piper, who's a pastor in America, preach through the book of Romans. Uh, That little jingle for Desiring God, if you know it, that was, you know, their radio ministry, that was etched into my brain because I would turn a sermon on and play PlayStation. And as I did that, bit by bit, my entire worldview was changed. I came to see the all-glorious, all-gracious, all-sovereign, all-good God. The, the truths of Romans 8 and then the sovereignty of God in Romans 9 through 11 changed the very way I looked at my life, changed who I thought God was. It gave me this God-entranced vision of all things. Um, as Romans was preached, my, my heart was caught a lot. As a young 16-year-old, I turned from a life where I was actually following kind of two paths. I was going to youth group, going to church, but also going out partying with the footy guys. And, and as my vision got captured by how good God was, in, that, in the words of that hymn, the things of this world grew strangely dim. Uh, I changed, I stopped playing footy. Actually, I changed my friendship group and, and I gave my life fully and devoted to Christ. In that time, I even felt called to be a preacher of the gospel. Uh, and here I am now. And it's my hope that as we embark on studying this letter, this vital letter, this crucial letter, that we too will be changed by its contents. John Piper tagged the Roman, the letter to the Romans as the greatest letter ever written. It's a worthy tag. Martin Luther said of Romans, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart. I'm not there yet. (laughs) But also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much. For the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. That's been my experience of the letter. 
as I chose to preach in, on it and study it, I've been giving my heart to reading it and reading it and reading it and listening to it and reading it uh, over the past couple of months. And I can attest with Luther, it, it is more precious and more glorious the more I read it. It doesn't get more boring, it gets more fascinating and gets more confusing. The more I know the letter, the less I know about it. <laughs> the more I study it, the more questions I have. Uh, and so I hope that as, as you come into it, that you will join in this venture, that you'll give yourself, your soul, your study, your time to studying these great words. Not the great words of a man, but the words of God written by a man. Romans, though, however, is a long book, uh, and I'm not going to give a detailed outline of Romans uh, today or give you, you know, unnecessary background information. I don't want to do that. I'm going to take a couple of weeks to preach through verses 1 through 17 so we can slowly work our way through the introduction. But as an overview, so you have a little bit of a map, you'll notice that Romans is actually 16 chapters long. It's about 2,100 words. Uh, it's it's the longest letter in the New Testament and, the, as I've said, the most significant. Uh, the, the way it's broken up, if you think of it like there's a, the top and tail or the, the beginning and end, act as sort of the bracket. Now, so Paul introduces himself and his, why he's writing it in chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 17. And then he gives this grand summary of his gospel in verses 18 of chapter 1, all the way through to Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Then, Romans 15, verse 8, through to the end of chapter 16, he goes back to saying why he wrote this letter, his plans, what he's going to do. He sends a whole bunch of greetings, greets people's name, etc., etc. And in the middle, you see this incredible exposition of the gospel. Paul wants his hearers that he's never met in Rome to know the gospel through and through. And so in Romans chapter 1 through 3, he establishes this, well, he asks this question, really, how can anyone be righteous before a holy God? And the climax after saying that no one will be righteous, no one can do it, everyone, Jew and Gentile, the climax is Jesus. Then in chapter 4, he, he turns to the question of what, what about Abraham and, and the Jewish faith? And he shows that it's actually always been by grace through faith. It, it's never been about work to the law. Then in chapters 5 through 8, he begins to look forward to our future hope and begins to outline what it means to live for Christ now and what it means to have hope forever. In chapters 9 through 11, he summarizes how it works now that Gentiles have been included in the gospel. And he gives this powerful, logical argumentation as to God's complete sovereignty over all things, even salvation. And then after he's done with that, Romans 11, 33 to 36, Paul just steps back and says, Oh, the depths of the knowledge of the wisdom of God. You know, who can measure him? Who can fathom him? Nothing. No one can. And then in chapter 12 through 15, he sees how knowing and believing this gospel explodes into our lives and changes everything about us. Changes what we do, how we live, how we relate, how races work together, how strong and weak people come together, how we're meant to use our gifts. And that's all Romans 12 through 15. So when you think about Romans, you've got to think there's this bracket, the beginning and the end, Massive long gospel exposition up to chapter 11, and then 12 through 15 is this gospel 
application. So that, that gives you a bit of a, a road map as you go and read it for yourself. But if we needed one major heading to tie the whole book together, probably the heading would be simply the gospel. Uh, this letter really is a summary of the gospel. The announcement of salvation and victory through Jesus Christ is the central subject of the entire book of Romans. And that's why I want us to study it. I want us to spend 70 weeks because it's going to bring us back to the gospel each and every week. As a church, we are passionate about the glorious gospel. Nothing is better than the message that Jesus Christ came as a man, died in our place for our sins, was buried, rose again, and is coming back to give us glorious eternal life. And Romans will keep us on that theme each and every week. But not only that, Romans is also a gateway to all of Scripture. John Calvin, the reformer, rightly says this of Romans. When anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him in the understanding of the whole Scripture. So as we study Romans, we're actually going to know the whole point of the Bible. J.I. Packer famously said, All roads in the Bible lead to Romans. And all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. And when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, there is no telling what may happen. Oh, how I long to see in our lives and in your life what God might do as we study this glorious letter. Can I commend to you, church, that you give yourself to studying this letter? There's only so much we'll get through in every sermon. I want you to read it for yourself. Study it for yourself. Have your own questions. Do your own Bible studies. Be mastered by the text. Memorize the text. Get in to Romans. Uh, dialogue with Paul. Argue with Paul. Get to know him. Get to know the message. Uh, in the fourth century, the Archbishop of Constantinople, who was, that's Turkey, modern day Turkey, John uh, Chrysostom, he, he used to have Romans read to him twice a week. Twice a week, the whole letter. And on feast days, uh, feast weeks, when they you know, celebrated particular martyrs and saints, he would have it read to him four times. And he said this, Gladly do I enjoy the spiritual trumpet and get roused and warmed with desire at recognising the voice so dear to me. That's Paul's voice. And seem to fancy him all but present to my sight and behold him conversing with me. But I grieve and am pained that all people do not know this man as much as they ought to know him. And this comes not of incapacity, but of their not having the wish to be continually conversing with this blessed man. There's no excuse for us. We have the Bible. We have audio Bibles. We have a billion sermons online. We have study Bibles. I want you to know this man and his letter so that it changes your very life. So today we're going to jump into just verses 1 to 4 in order to somewhat achieve some of that aim to know this man and his message. And I have two simple points, the man, the message. Uh, so let's jump into 
Point number one, the man. Read verse one with me. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul gives in verses 1 through 17 uh, the longest introduction he gives in any of his letters, uh, the most personal introduction he gives in any of his letters. We learn in chapter 15 that he's actually writing it with Timothy, but he doesn't mention Timothy here. Uh, the, the, the reason for that probably is because Paul has never been to Rome and he wants to establish a connection with the Romans from the outset. He wants them to know him um, and he wants to give away some of the details of his personal life because it's Paul's aim to get to Rome eventually so that he can, from there, build a mission base so that he can go up actually into Spain and preach the gospel into areas he has not preached. Look at Romans 15, 22 to 24. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, that is, he's preached the gospel, churches are established, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped in my journey there by you, once I've enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul wants them to get to know him and he wants them to know his gospel so that they can be his gospel partners. Uh, they, they don't know Paul. There would have been lots of rumors, gossip, slander, good and bad about Paul. And so Paul wants to clarify who he is and what he really believes. And that's why he writes the letter to the Romans. That's why he makes it such a large letter. Uh, but the letter is not just a letter in general, it's the letter to the Romans. It's not just an exposition of the gospel, it's an exposition of the gospel to the Romans. And as we'll see in future weeks, uh, their particular circumstance will inform the particular topics and the way he preaches the gospel to them. But in order for them to know about him, he tells us three things in this passage about himself. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. He's called to be an apostle and he's set apart for the gospel of God. But before we get to them, I just want to start with the very first word. And that's how you can tell it's going to be a long series. Paul. Uh, Paul. We can't get past the beginning of the letter. Paulos in the Greek is the author. Uh, this man, you may not know him. If you're new to church or it's your first time coming along, you haven't been for a while, Paul is the most unlikely person to be writing this magisterial letter. If you, if you don't know his story, I want to outline very briefly his story. Paul was a Pharisee, which was part of the most strict sect of the Jewish people at the time before Christ. Uh, when it says set apart for the gospel in verse 1, uh, the word Pharisee literally means set apart. So it's sort of a play on word. He was stricter than strict. He's tutored under one of the prominent teachers of the time, Gamaliel, which Acts 22 teaches us. And he hated Christians. He hated Christians because they taught that the long-awaited Messiah had come. The one that they were promised in the Old Testament scriptures and that he'd come as a lowly man from Nazareth and died in shame on a Roman cross. So furious was Paul's hatred of Christians that he volunteered himself as a bounty hunter. 
He went on a search and destroy mission, pulling Christians out of their homes and churches, having them imprisoned or even killed. Until one day, on a road to Damascus, Paul was met by none other than someone called Jesus, who called to him in a blinding light using the Hebrew version of his name, Saul. We pick up the story in Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Jesus appears in blinding light and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now poor Ananias, who was a disciple in Damascus, was given the job by Jesus to go and baptize Saul. Uh, The very one whom he was hiding from, Ananias was hiding from Saul, gets told by Jesus, you've got to go and meet Saul and I've got work for Saul to do. So Ananias goes to Saul's home uh, where Saul was lodging. Saul had been in fasting and in prayer. He'd been blind. I'm sure his whole world had been turned upside down because the very person he thought was a joke had revealed himself to him. And Ananias lays his hands on him. The scales fall from Paul's eyes. He repents and believes and becomes a Christian. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's baptized straight away. And what does Paul do immediately? Well, verse 20 of Acts chapter 9, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. (laughs) Straight away, Paul goes from being the persecutor of Jesus and the church to the preacher of the gospel to the churches. And this is what the Lord said to Ananias. This was Saul's very calling. Verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And that is the rest of Paul's life. You can read about it from Acts chapter 13 all the way through to Acts chapter 28 tells the story of Paul's missionary journeys and his writings and movements around the Roman Empire, preaching the gospel, establishing churches, installing leaders, fighting heresies, being harassed, persecuted, imprisoned. His life was, uh, you know, his own life had attempted assassinations. Why did he go through all of this? Because of that fateful day on a road to Damascus when Christ set him apart for the preaching of the gospel. So that's Paul, an unlikely author, someone that never you would have never predicted the morning of Damascus Road journey to be the one that would go on to literally change the entire world. We're only standing or sitting here today because of that moment in history. And so Paul identifies himself, not just by his name, but he tells us three things. He says, he is a servant of Christ Jesus. 
Uh, that's sort of like a euphemistic way of saying it. Really, in the Greek, it's slave of Christ Jesus. Paul identifies himself, firstly, not as this great person, look at all that I've done, but whose he is. He says, I have a master, and I'm mastered by him, and I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. It's not a very lofty way to introduce yourself uh, at a party or maybe at your new workplace. I don't think that's probably how you, hi, yes, my name's Riley. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Pleased to meet you. Uh, It's not really how we do things, but that's the first thing that Paul wants us to know about him, that he's a slave. He's, He's not a renegade. He's not on his own mission. He's bought by a price. But when your master is Jesus Christ that gives all the nobility in the world to the title slave. What greater privilege could there be in our life than to identify ourselves as called into the service of the king of the universe? Jesus is his Lord. Jesus fills every part of his life. Eight times in the first seven verses of Romans, Paul mentions Jesus one way or another. Why? Because Jesus is everything to him. Secondly, he tells us of his office or his calling that he is an apostle. An apostle is someone who is sent. Uh, Sometimes the New Testament can use that word quite generally. Uh, Someone's an apostle if they're sent to bring a letter to a church. Uh, But Paul's using the technical way of defining an apostle here. That is someone who has seen Christ and has been sent by Christ specifically. Paul is an apostle or a sent one of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, he outlines his mission or his purpose. He is set apart for the gospel of God. That means his life calling is the gospel, which includes knowing it and proclaiming it. Note that Paul uses that phrase, the gospel of God. It's not good news that he's made up. It's not his ideas. It's not this you know, great way of philosophy, this new way of living. It's the very good news that God himself has revealed to him. And this is, introduces us to a major theme of the letter of Romans. God, God himself really makes up, along with the gospel, the other unifying idea or theme that runs throughout the whole letter to the Romans. Paul wants us to know God, to be blown up in our vision of God, to submit ourselves under who God is. The great commentator Douglas Moo says this, Romans is ultimately a book about God, how he acted to bring salvation, how his justice is preserved, how his purposes are worked out in history, how he can be served by his people. Now we, we like us, We're concerned about our lives and our story and and what's going on. But Paul is concerned with God. And I want you and I to lift our eyes above the plane of our life and realize that the most significant person in the universe is God himself. Paul was captured by that reality and he wants you and I to be captured by that too. 
So this is our friend Paul, the author of the letter. He's a slave of Christ, an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God. Notice how Paul's life is defined not by who he is, but by whose he is. In our self-centered world, what Carl Truman has said is a, that we are all expressive individualists now. This cuts against the way we normally look at our life. Paul wants us to know about God and he, his life is in relation to God himself. Whereas we are often so caught up with defining our identity and who we are and what we're called to do and what we want to do with our lives and what, what, what do I want to do with my career and my family? Where do I want to live? You know, what's, what gives me most joy? But right here in this first verse, it should reorient us a little bit. In the 1950s, Jean-Paul Sartre, who was a French existentialist philosopher, he, he, he believed that there was no God, uh, and that meant we're free. But the bad side to that was is that we're condemned to be free. If there's no God, then you have to make up who you are. You have to define your own existence, and you alone are responsible for your identity. And so it sits heavily upon us. And I think we're reaping the fruit of that in our generation now. Every one of us is so caught up with, have I missed it? Am I great enough? Do I measure up? Am I good enough? Am I doing the right career? Do people think enough of me? But instead, Paul knows that he's not free. He's a slave of Christ. And that liberates him because he doesn't have to figure out his life. He doesn't have to reinterpret. He gets his identity. He gets his calling. He gets his mission from something outside of himself. It's from God. And that's the same for you and I. We don't have, obviously, the same mission or calling as Paul. But each one of us was bought with a price by Christ himself. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Slavery to Christ is liberating. You don't have to make up your own life. You have a book. You have a Lord. And he tells you who you are and what you are meant to do. He says in Galatians 1.10, for, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. You see, slavery to Christ for all of us means that we don't have to live always looking around trying to please others. Instead, we have one master. He will judge us. And so can I commend to you, church, to be like Paul, to recognize that primarily about yourself is not who you are and figuring out what you've got to do, but whose you are. That you too, because of what Christ has done, are bought with a price and are therefore a slave of Christ. As we saw at retreat, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. That same slave word is used as a verb there. Give a slave's service. Doesn't that just cut against a normal way of thinking? But it's actually liberating. 
So do you see yourself in these terms? Do you want a taste of liberty? Well, then submit yourself again under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So that's point one, the man. We've been introduced to Paul, but Paul quickly wants to move on from himself. He'll, he'll pick up his own story again in verse 5, and he wants to tell us his message. He interrupts his self-introduction to preach the gospel. He just can't get enough of it. He's like, I'm going to preach the gospel. Just get it in there straight away as we start this letter. So that leads us to point number two, the message. So what is his message? What is this great gospel? He gives a a very kernel summary form of it in verses 2 through 4. So verse 1, set apart for the gospel of God. Read verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul tells us three things about the gospel here. Firstly, the gospel is promised. Look at verse 2, which he promised. So the gospel of God, parentheses, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Again, as we've already said, that the gospel is no invention or surprise, but it's actually a message that he got from God. But it wasn't just new, it was actually the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. And what we see in Romans is Paul arguing from the Old Testament because he's speaking to both Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church. And he wants to teach them and show them that the good news of Jesus Christ was actually promised all the way in the Old Testament. It's been the story the whole time. The whole message of the Old Testament is not you're saved by your works and you've got to earn your place with God. That's not the message of the Old Testament. The message of the Old Testament is salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And Paul will go to at pains in detail to preach that message to us. And so the message, the announcement of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And notice what Paul says about Scripture in the Holy Scriptures. Paul believes that the you know, 39 books of the Old Testament are holy that they are the infallible word of God, set apart by God. They're not just the recordings of Moses and Jeremiah and Nehemiah and various other authors. These are the very words of God. And I want to just ask you as we begin our study in Romans, do you believe that the Bible is the very word of God? inspired by God, written by the pen of man. Because if you don't believe that the Bible is God's word and that Romans is actually from God himself, then it's just like any other book. Yes, it's well attested to. Yes, it's historical. It's famous. It's influential. But it's just any other book. If you have any doubts about Scripture itself, I commend you to look into those doubts, investigate them. You will never progress in your Christian life until you're settled that this word is God's word and you submit yourself under it. 
If you know the story of Billy Graham, when he was just starting out in his preaching ministry, he was at the height of what was called the liberal movement in Bible colleges, where German scholarship had basically preached that you can't re- the Bible is just man's document. You can't really trust it. There's errors in it. There's problems in it. You just got to keep to Jesus and pretty much everything else. All the miracles, you don't trust them. Uh, all the f- historical details, they're false. Um, they're, it, it's a really good book, but it's not God's book. And one of the famous preachers at that time, a guy called Chuck Templeton, he was trying to say to Billy Graham, don't trust it. Uh, don't, don't base all your ministry on saying the Bible says. And so Billy Graham at the outset of his ministry was so confused and he was drawn by, he was a smart guy, he was studying at college, he, was, he had all these doubts, he didn't know what to do with them. And then eventually in a crisis moment in his life, while he was away in a camp on, in the woods, he felt called by God to go for a walk late at night. He had all these doubts. He wasn't 100% sure that the Bible was God's word. And so he lay the Bible on a rock and he got on his knees under the moonlight in this forest. And he said, Lord, I don't know 100% if this is your word, but I will submit to it as if it is. And from that moment, everything changed in his ministry. He had all the power in the world to preach the gospel because he trusted and submitted that it was the very word of God. And friends, if you have similar doubts, you're not alone. I've had doubts like that in my life. There's been times when I've been like, really, is it actually, is this? Investigate those doubts. Interrogate them. Bring, you can talk about them with other people. You don't have to bury them. But you need to contend with them because if it's not God's word then we're just playing a game here and you know maybe it's helpful in some ways but it's not ultimately binding on your life so I commend to you do you believe that these are holy scripture and if you don't investigate and figure out so that you can submit to it as God's very word so firstly the gospel is promised secondly Verse 3, concerning his son. So the second thing is the gospel is about Jesus, which we know, but it's worth remembering. The message of the gospel is a person. Uh, that word gospel was a Roman word. It, it wasn't a word that, well, it's a Greek word, but it wasn't a Christian word. It, it just was a word that meant good news. Often military commanders or the emperor would use it to say, Good news, we've won a battle. Good news, this has happened. And you would send out messengers across the empire to preach the gospel. And Paul saying, I'm a man of the gospel, but a different gospel. My gospel is about Jesus, the person, Jesus Christ, namely his son. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, the son of God. Whatever good news of Christianity, it must always be tied back to the real man, Jesus Christ. The God-man, Jesus Christ. For the Jews in Paul's time, they needed to see that the good news was not about their nation, but about Jesus Christ himself, the true Son of God. You see, the Israelites, since Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, had defined themselves or had been told by God that they were his son, collectively, but now it's changed. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel, and so he is 
God's very own son. So what is he like? Well, the third thing he tells us about the gospel is that the gospel is about King Jesus. So the gospel is promised, the gospel is about Jesus, and finally the gospel is about King Jesus. Look at verses 3 to 4. Concerning his son, who is descended from the seed of David, or that's in the literal, descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul here makes two parallel statements about Jesus. And it looks like he's telling us two things about Jesus, about his human nature and his divine nature. But that's actually not what Paul is doing here. He's actually telling us about two stages in Jesus's life. The first stage when Jesus came as a man to fulfill the Old Testament, came as a son of David to fulfill 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 to 14 and Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, that there would be one in the line of David who would be the Messiah, the promised one, the King of Israel. So Jesus came according to the flesh in the line of David through his father, Joseph, by proxy. But then the second stage or the second sequence that Paul wants to tell us is that he came as a man firstly. Secondly, he was appointed as the Son of God in power. So he came as a Son of God in flesh, but he was appointed the Son of God in power. Or your translation will say, declared to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit of holiness. At what point? By the resurrection from the dead. So what Paul's saying here is that firstly, the first stage, Jesus came as a man and, and he, he is a man. He was 100% man. But in the second stage of his ministry, he was elevated or crowned as king over all humanity, indeed over the entire cosmos. Uh, that word declared there is better translated as appointed or designated. In Jesus's resurrection, as he defeats Satan, sin and death and rises from the grave, he inaugurates a new stage in human history. The age of the spirit. You see, the age of the flesh is done in his death. When Jesus died on the cross, Adam's sin was paid for. Your sin was paid for. The realm of the flesh, the, the, the weakness of humanity was swallowed up in death. But then when Jesus rose from the dead, all who have faith in Jesus Christ will enter into now and in the fullness of time, the age of the Holy Spirit, the resurrected life. And that's what we have to look forward to. Jesus was raised in a spiritual body, a new existence, and will reign forever and ever bodily and in spirit. And so will you. And so what Paul is trying to let us see here is that the good news of the gospel is that the, the flesh has been swallowed up and now there's victory in Jesus Christ. This is going to be a theme that Paul will talk lots about in Romans chapter 5 through 8. Now, we, we must note that Jesus wasn't adopted as the Son of God or what didn't become the Son of God at his resurrection. What he became is the Son of God in power. There was a new stage in his ministry. And therefore, Paul summarizes the gospel, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Therefore, the gospel is, in short form, a promised gospel about Jesus, who is King Jesus. Jesus, the man, who is Christ, the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament, who is now Lord, ruling and reigning over all the earth and indeed the entire cosmos. This is, in short form, what Paul is going to unpack in the rest of the letter. It's terse. It's hard to get through all the details. But I love his heart. I love that he, he introduces himself and then interrupts himself. Like, I just got to preach the gospel. <laughs> yeah, so dominated and captivated he is by the gospel that that's what flows out of him. And may that be the same for you and I. When we think about ourselves in our lives, think first, I am someone else's. I'm bought with a price. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. And how did that happen? or by this glorious message of the gospel, that Jesus came as a man. He died our death. He resurrected in power so that we will tap into that power if and only if you have your faith in Christ Jesus. So let me conclude by asking, do you know this Jesus? Do you know him as your Lord? Are you personally a slave of Christ Jesus? Have you rejected your old way of life and put yourself and said, I want you to be my king. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to rule me. I want, I want to live for you. And if you haven't, perhaps today is the day when you repent and you turn from your previous way of living all about yourself and give yourself to this king who died in your place and for your sin. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray and ask that you would help us to get to know Paul and you would get to know his gospel, for it is indeed your gospel. Lord, I pray and ask that we would know this letter well. I pray and ask that you would help us to study it and to be shaped by it, to celebrate it. Uh, Lord, may it rule us and dominate us as a people. And Lord, I pray and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.